This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Almighty God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would speak to us afresh by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we continue in our mini-series working through the letter of James. Last week, Father Kevin spoke about the two stories that are present in the world. One is the story of Adam, marked by rebellion, sin, evil, and death. The other is the story of Jesus, marked by our submission to him, resisting evil, receiving forgiveness, and new life. And the question for us was and is, of which story are we a part? Which narrative describes your life? This morning, we're going to press in a little closer to see what it looks like to live our lives according to the second narrative, the narrative of our life in Christ. Our appointed reading overlaps with where we ended last week and then continues to the end of chapter 4. There are many ways that we might illustrate the contrast of these two narratives. The one I want to explore this morning is the contrast between a rights-based approach to life versus a grace-based approach to life. America is very much a rights-based society. Our rights as American citizens are enshrined in the Bill of Rights and the Constitution. These rights are sometimes the envy of many in the world. These rights include freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, and freedom of assembly. We have the right to due process under the law, the right to trial by jury, etc., etc. We are very fortunate to live in a nation that is, by and large, governed by laws. And we have a constitution that, by and large, is upheld. We should not take these freedoms for granted. In the Jesus story, however, the kingdom of God looks quite different. We could go so far as to say that the kingdom of God is not a rights-based society at all. Rather than offering us a Christian bill of rights, James outlines for us seven duties and three blessings that characterize life in the kingdom of God. So I want us to take a look at them. And don't panic. I know there are 10 points here, but they, they'll go quickly. The first duty, James writes, is to submit yourself to God. Submit is not a word we particularly like. As a child, my, my brother and I, much to the disquiet of my mother, would sometimes wrestle with each other until one of us yelled, submit. Maybe you've wrestled with siblings too until someone shouts, uncle. Where on earth that was? Why are you shouting uncle? I've always thought that was utterly bizarre. But anyway, well, we, we used to call our wrestling game Submit or Die. You can appreciate why my mother didn't like it. Submission is to many people a word of weakness. 
of defeat, of shame, powerlessness in the face of overwhelming force. But the call to submit in the Bible is not coercive or violent. Those who are citizens of the kingdom of God are called to a willing submission to God and to one another out of reverence for Christ. So husbands and wives are to submit to one another. Children are to submit to their parents. This kind of submission is not weak passivity in the face of dominance. Rather, it is the voluntary taking up of our rightful place, not thinking of ourselves better than others. Supremely, when we think about submission to God, it is about acknowledging that he is God and we are not. When we do that, when we submit to God, we find not slavery, but freedom. Freedom to live as God intends for us to live. Freedom from the burden of doing everything our way. Freedom from the demands of having to figure out everything by ourselves for ourselves. The two stories, the biblical story of Adam and the story of Jesus, could not be more different. Adam's story focuses on self, self-actualization, self-worth, self-discovery. It's a rights-based, me-based approach to life, and it leads always and everywhere to disillusionment, disappointment, and destruction. Taken to its logical extreme, it ends in narcissism. Individuals pursuing this narrative are under so much pressure, more than our humanity can bear. The other approach to life focuses on God. As Kevin reminded us last week, even Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself even to death on a cross. When we put God first, then we can live not demanding our rights, but in submission to the one who made us knows us, loves us, provides for us, helps us, comforts us, equips us, exalts us, and saves us. And that changes everything. The pressure is off. After first stressing the importance then of, of submitting ourselves to God, James continues with the second duty, resist the devil. As I said a month ago when preaching on Ephesians 6 about the importance of putting on the whole armor of God, the devil is real and we ignore him at our peril. It is our responsibility, James tells us, to resist the devil. And that doesn't mean going on the attack, nor does it mean blaming the devil for all our own selfishness and willfulness. It means not listening to his lies, but instead taking our stand equipped with the armor of God. And the extraordinary thing is, James tells us, that when you resist the devil, what happens? What happens? Yes, he flees from you. He will flee. The clearest resistance to the devil and all his lies is our submission to God. Thirdly, writes James, draw near to God. We know from elsewhere in the scriptures that God seeks us long before we go seeking him. Indeed, the Bible tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This drawing near to God is another way of 
talking about repentance. And repentance must be a way of life. Like lost sheep, we are so very prone to wander. We are headstrong. We are willful. And we need to repent again and again and again. I should also add that repentance is not the same thing as being sorry. As James reminds us here with the fourth and fifth charges to us, repentance involves our hands as well as our hearts. Cleanse our hands, cleanse your hands, you sinners, he writes, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Repentance then involves both our attitudes and our actions, what we think and what we do. James does not gloss over any of this as he says with his sixth charge to us, lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into dejection. Whoa, that sounds a bit of a downer. Whatever happened to the joyful Christian life? Well, we, we know from many other places in the scriptures, including from St. James, that there is joy to be found in the midst of our brokenness. But what does he mean here? I think what James is driving at is the importance of facing up to sin and rebellion for what it is and not treating it lightly as if it doesn't really matter. By the way, we might think that we have to get our act together before we can draw near to God, but that's not true. That's not the order of things here. Indeed, the closer we come to God, the more clearly we understand how far short of his glory we all fall. He is a holy God. In the scriptures, every time someone comes close to God, they, they fall flat on their faces in lament and mourning and weeping as they realize just how unclean they are. That's what holiness does. The seventh duty James lists for us is humble yourselves before the Lord. Godly grief and lamenting over our sin are what lead to true humility. The psalmist reminds us in Psalm 51, a true and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And Jesus tells us that it is the poor in spirit who receive the kingdom of heaven. These, then, are some of the duties that Jesus, that James, rather, outlines for us. What, then, are the blessings? Well, there are, are at least three. First, that God will draw near to you. We need daily to draw near to God, absolutely. And yet, when we do, when we come to our senses like the prodigal son and we turn back to God, we discover he is already on the lookout for us, eager to welcome us home, eager to enfold us with his love, eager to be so close to us. No matter how far you may have strayed from God, no matter how rebellious or willful you may have been, the invitation even today is to come home. God has drawn near to you. What an extraordinary grace from God. He is near to you. And in Christ, we can know closeness, intimacy, and belonging. 
And, you know, we experience that in one another. Sure, it's imperfect. Of course we mess up. But it's real. It's palpable. It's here. The second blessing James highlights is that God will exalt you. When we repent and turning, uh, turn to Christ in humility, God does not leave us mourning, lamenting, and weeping. No, he lifts us up. He covers our shame. We don't have to lift ourselves up. We don't have to prove ourselves. And yet, we can hold our heads high because our confidence is in him and in the sure knowledge that we are beloved. The pressure so many experience today in having to figure out who they are is immense. Oh, that we would know afresh our true identity in Christ. What joy it is to know who we are and whose we are. In the next section of this epistle, verses 11 and 12, James gives us a warning. He warns us against speaking against our brothers and sisters in Christ. In the secular law, the defense to a charge of defamation, whether that's slander, which is a spoken defamatory word, or libel, which is a written word, the defense to that is what? Anybody know? Sure defense. Truth. That's right, truth. You can't be guilty of defamation if you're telling the truth. Now, in our rights-based society, my freedom of speech allows me to say or print all sorts of things. And if they're true statements, even though they may have the effect of tearing someone down, well, tough. I can say it. I can write it. But that's, that's not how we're to behave as Christians. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. Whoever speaks evil against another or judges another speaks evil against the law and judges the law. We're called to build one another up, not tear one another down. Is what you post on social media building people up or tearing them down? Let's not stand on our rights and merely say, oh, well, it's true. Well, it may be. But hear these words of James. God has every right to condemn us. After all, he is holy, just, utterly righteous. And yet, the Bible tells us Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. That's good news. God draws near to us. God exalts us. And now James reminds us of a third extraordinary blessing God is the one who saves. We are the recipients of extraordinary grace, undeserved mercy. If Jesus is the one who saves us, let us not be slandering a brother or sister in Christ. Let us not be judging our neighbor. As those who have been saved by grace, we no longer have to live in fear. We can know safety security, strength for today, and bright hope for tomorrow in Jesus. When we know that God has drawn near to us, that he has even exalted us and saved us, that sets the backdrop for how we are to live our lives in submission to God, resisting the devil, 
drawing near to God, cleansing our hands, purifying our hearts with true repentance and amendment of life, lamenting sin, and humbling ourselves before God. Well, in the final verses of this chapter, verses 13 through 17, James warns us against arrogance, particularly when it comes to our planning. My, my grandparents always used to say DV whenever they talked about plans for the future. Well, kids, you know, tomorrow we'll go to the zoo, DV. Anybody know what DV stands for? Yep. Deo Valente, God willing. It's Latin. And they said this so often, DV, uh, that as a child, I kind of thought it was a bit silly. Although I have to tell you, in, over the last 18 months, I think uh, they clearly had a point. Or rather, I should say, St. James had a point when he says this. As we press ahead and make plans in our lives and for the church, which is a perfectly good and proper thing to do, we do so, however, with these words of St. James in mind. If the Lord wishes, we will do this. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. But this we know. God is sovereign. Our hope is in the one who saves us, exalts us, and draws near to us. Tucked into the final verses about planning and wondering and not knowing what on earth tomorrow will be, bring, James asks a profound question, and I want to finish with this question this morning. What is your life? We may strive to define ourselves or promote ourselves. We may stand on our rights. But when all is said and done, our life, James tells us, is mist. Verse 14, you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. We do not know how many days have been allotted to us. But death remains the ultimate statistic. Maybe it will come via an 18-wheeler. Maybe it will be COVID. Maybe it will be an aneurysm. The bottom line is our days are numbered. We don't know what tomorrow brings. We don't even know what we don't know. And while that may produce anxiety, it, it can actually be a gateway to freedom. Freedom to let God be God. Knowing that we are his beloved. And we do know this. God is calling us to draw near to him. That is the surest, safest bet in life. It's the assurance of eternal life in Christ. That's good news. James ends this chapter with these so sobering words. Anyone then who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it commits sin. How easily we can get an overinflated view of ourselves. How much we need to regain a right sense of perspective. It makes sense, does it not, to hand over the steering wheel of our lives to God, to submit to him, draw near to him, trust him with all that we have 
and all that we are, for he and he alone is sovereign. Amen.